Hi everyone, this is Michael. In this episode, I spoke with Daniel DeCaro, Associate Professor in the Department of Psychological and Brain Sciences at the University of Louisville. I met Daniel briefly when we were both at the workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis at Indiana University when I was a graduate student there. And I recently rediscovered his work when I was doing some research on something called self-determination theory. This approach was primarily developed by Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan, and argues that humans have basic fundamental needs, including autonomy. And it argues that if these are satisfied, we are more intrinsically motivated, not needing external incentives to encourage us to do something, and we're more pro-social, which of course are good things from a governance perspective. In the work of Daniels that we discussed, he uses public goods-based experiments to explore the importance of autonomy and procedural justice, as well as the importance of sanctioning and affecting collective outcomes. Daniel has also developed the interesting idea of participatory fit, which expresses the idea that there is no one-size-fits-all approach to participatory governance because people perceive of participation as meeting their basic needs differently based on their own internalized norms. So what counts as participation varies across groups and cultures. So I've been reading a lot about self-determination theory. I'm writing a book mm -hmm. on self-governance and a friend of mine, Graham Epstein, told me about this yeah. whole, you know, motivational crowding, intrinsic versus extrinsic and self-determination by Ryan and DC, who I think are out of, out of Rochester, yeah, which is actually where I grew up. And so they published a book in 2018, I think just called self-determination theory. And so I worked through that over this past summer and I just thought it was terrific. There were lots of insights. Yeah. Um, it just, it, it felt like one of these books that any kind of an environmental social scientist who focuses on the commons should kind of know about. I agree. And I started thinking about you because they cite you a bunch in that book and otherwise they don't really make strong connections to environmental issues or the commons in that book or in other literature that I've read related to self-determination theory, there's actually one yeah. paper I found that relates the basic needs that I wanna to talk to you about to place attachment, mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting. Mm -hmm. But otherwise I've not found a lot that's very like place or environmentally specific. Yeah. So that's why I wanted to reach out to you to really talk to you about your work on, you know, it's hard to know what keyword to start with Daniel, to be honest you start reading some of the psychological literature and it's, it can feel a little overwhelming because there's so many concepts and yep. each paper seems to use them just a little bit differently. And so mm -hmm. when you're trying to synthesize things in your own mind, it's, and, and maybe I'm describing just the challenge of academia generally, but so I'd love to start Daniel by presenting my understanding of the importance of participation. And then I'd love to hear your response to that. And then through your response, we can, I'd love to start um, digging into your own contributions to this space. Yeah, that sounds good. Because I think listeners would love to hear about your own role in this, but also it'd be great for them to, if we can get to our own gestalt understanding of participation and how it um, relates to other important concepts. I think that's something a lot of us struggle with because we know it's important. When I think about participation and why it's important, I think about it as both an, in, an inherent and an instrumental good. 
It's inherently good. We value it just because, and that actually relates to these basic needs that I want to talk to you about from the self-determination theory. I want to call it a research program. It's inherently good because people value self-determination. They value participation. It, it improves their well-being. There's that, there is that argument out there. And I think without that argument, we kind of need that argument because without that, we lose some of the theoretical or intellectual justification for local rights and self-determination by a lot of different types of folks. And then there's the instrumental role it plays, which is where my brain is currently putting a lot of your work, where we value it because of the other things that it gets us other than it contributing directly to human well-being and therefore being inherently good. So it gets us, right, in your work, the main outcome variable that I perceived is cooperation in some of the, you know, particularly the experimental work that I've been looking at, which relates closely to compliance. I'm, relate, I'm, I'm aware that these terms are also maybe a little bit different. When I think about cooperation, I think about a community context and whether or not folks are cooperating with members of a group. When I think about compliance, I think about whether or not they're complying with things that have been imposed on from the outside, but otherwise they feel kind of similar. But I know there's different literatures on those. And so that's something we, we, we instrumentally value participation because it gets us, in your language, I see you use the term like procedural legitimacy or uh, justice a lot. It gets us, people, people internalize the norms if they participate in creating those norms. So that's great. And then there's this other argument and that's, that's Daniel, how I understand a lot of your work to be framed is trying to unpack that particular argument. But you also use the word fit in some of your work. So I'd also love to talk to you about this idea of fit and your understanding of it. Because, and you talk about different types of fit, which I find interesting and potentially helpful. Because there is this big literature on fit and social ecological fit, where, you know, interestingly, we are ultimately talking about several of, of Lynn's design principles about you know, principle three, collective choice arrangements, people need to participate. Part of design principle two is about fit. I've never really liked the idea of fit. I was reading your article where you talk about institutional fit and I either projected or noticed a little bit of skepticism on your part too, and like, how, how can we make this actually work? But so there <laughs> yeah. is this argument that participation helps enable fit, right? If you have local <laughs> folks because of local knowledge um, they're more aware of local circumstances. And so they will be able to adjust institutions to fit those local circumstances. I think there's also, right, if you go to Fikret Berkey's, talks about the importance of traditional ecological knowledge. That's also related to this idea. And that's really kind of an evolutionary, cultural evolutionary argument that this knowledge, local knowledge ultimately represents, well, traditional ecological knowledge, he's, he's, he distinguishes these terms. And sorry to throw a bunch at you, but you can tell I'm trying to make sense of all of this. No, it's good. So traditional ecological knowledge, right, is this idea that over time, cultures evolve institutions, norms, rules that fit their local circumstance. So that's not just local knowledge of like knowing where something is or having a place name. There's this idea that it's adaptive. In, in a very kind of evolutionary sense. And to me, that, that's a very powerful and important argument. It's not just that if you're around an area for a while, you end up knowing 
some facts about that area, it's that there's this real institutional benefit um, to trying things out over time across generations. Okay, that from that is the 10,000 foot view of participation for me. Yeah. If someone asked me to describe it, right? And so I, you know, we could give like, we could unpack that into like an hour long lecture, but so I'd love to, um, my first question for you, Daniel, is how well does that jive with your uh, opinion about the importance of fit? Like, how do you yeah. frame it? Yeah, I, mean, I think I'm not fit uh, participation. Yeah, I think your bird's eye view of this aligns pretty well with my view. I think I would just pull together a few threads and clarify some things, you know, just add to it basically. So I think for me, it starts with understanding human behavior. So when you talk about the idea of local ecological knowledge and those folks using it for this adaptive process, I think in my mind, what you're speaking towards there is humans as adaptive decision makers. At least that's what we need to be. And what they're doing is they're problem solving. It's societal problem solving to think in the terms of like Vincent's work, where thinking of all of these social ecological dilemmas as these grand complex problems, these multi-dimensional optimization challenges. You know, when you think of all these dimensions that need to be resolved to resolve a complex dilemma. And so what you're really thinking about is co-production in a grand sense. So societal cooperation, societal problem solving be a process of co-production. So different actors from different backgrounds getting together. And you can look at that at different scales, but fundamentally it's about problem solving and human behavior. So what is it that motivates people and helps them to problem solve well? That's the way I first start to think about it. So I start with a different sort of definition of people. I saw in your work, you talk about this humanistic rational actor. It sounds like you're maybe referring to that a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Humanistic rational choice theory, where what I'm trying to do is to say, to recognize, you know, humans are, are more than what I think traditional rational choice theory gives them credit for. They're not just trying to optimize strategic instrumental outcomes. They're doing that, but they're also considering a whole bunch of other really important things. So you talked about self-determination, belonging, procedural fairness, competency needs, all those things. So here comes this problem that they're facing, whatever it might be. It might be managing a fishery. It might be um, water governance in some system at a small scale or regional scale or international scale, whatever. And then suddenly these needs and these instrumental concerns come into play. Um, so that's how I can kind of conceptualize the problem. Now, where does participation and fit fit into there? So yeah, my general understanding of social ecological fit is just trying to find a institutional and technological and behavioral solution that matches the dimensions or the demands of the problem well. And that's kind of where I started doing my work on this uh, from the Ostrom sort of perspective. So to me, when you start to think about institutional design and fit, and does the design of this fit the context or fit the problem, you need to fit the ecological demands of the problem. So the temporal sort of characteristics of this problem, maybe something's happening real fast, maybe certain changes are happening really slow. Well, are humans making decisions at the right pace with that? Are they too slow? Maybe they're making decisions too fast. Are they making it at the right geospatial scale? Maybe they're focusing on this like 
minor part of the system, but they need to be focused on all the linkages of the system. And that's really common in water governance. They'll look at like surface water and not groundwater, or they'll look at this well and not the whole system that it's attached to. So again, in this problem solving process, they need to be trying to optimize the correct parameters of the problem. So that, that's kind of intuitive. That kind of makes sense to me. The challenge is with design. How do we take the design so that it matches? And how do we get humans to where they can produce designs through this adaptive uh, evolutionary, evolutionary process to get something that works? So what I do there is I start thinking about Lynn's design principles. And that's where I really started to work with her was trying to understand them in terms of psychological processes. So how do they exert their effects? Because as someone trained in psychological science, what I often observe in these situations is if you lack true understanding of what's driving human behavior and you lack understanding of how those design features like shared decision-making, which is the participatory dimension, enforcement, mutual monitoring, communication. If you don't understand how those are operating psychologically, then what you end up doing is a lot of pattern matching. So you end up saying, here's this type of participatory process. Here's this context. What happened? Was it good or bad in what ways? And that is really good descriptively. But what ends up happening is you get a whole bunch of mixed results. So when I first came to the workshop, Lynn was brought to us uh, visiting scholars at that time her SES framework, and she said what she was currently working on, and she was really starting to rethink the idea of calling these design principles design principles. She was saying, I want to, I should have called them factors. And the reason being that I don't, she was saying, I don't think that shared decision making of will be important or useful in all contexts. And then me with my background of self-determination theory and other and uh, work on procedural justice, I was like, that doesn't sound right. It's supposed to be a universal thing that everyone needs to participate in the process, you know, or else they don't endorse it, they don't internalize it, they don't become motivated, and that decreases their ability to problem solve together. So what I ended up realizing was, I think that Lynn hadn't quite gotten to the point yet of thinking these as psychological design principles. So what I would say is, yes, a specific form of participation is not going to be optimal in all situations. The design principle is more likely that there is procedural justice. And in some contexts, it will look like this form of participatory democracy. And in other contexts, it'll look like this. It just so happens if you compare the two, they can be completely opposite. So you could have a system that a Western viewer might say from a Western democracy might say, this looks highly authoritarian and centralized and very little participation. There's no way that's good. But if you talk to those people and you ask them what they think is fair, they will say, it's fair for me to delegate decision-making responsibility to this authority figure because of this, this, and this. Therefore, I endorse the outcome. So the principle in my mind is a psychological principle, participatory fit. So in general, we want to, what, if I was gonna adjust Lynn's design principle to be more applicable, then what I would say is um, culturally and situationally appropriate forms of collective decision-making that are perceived as fair by those actors. So now you're thinking about psychological parameters and principles. So going back to what you were saying, uh, so that's this concept of participatory fit. So the idea that, yes, it's good to have in general, some form of participation, collective decision-making in these group contexts, 
Um, but we need to we need to appreciate that different people are going to want different things, different situations are going to demand different things. So we need to try to find the most appropriate forms of collective decision making in that context to then reap the benefits, these other benefits that we think will happen. So the way that I start to think about that is I think of, okay, what is their subjective definition of participation? If if they go into a, what should be a participatory democracy uh, opportunity on the surface of it, but they walk away and say, that felt coercive, that didn't feel legitimate, that didn't feel fair, then it's not participatory in their mind. And that's what matters. We are psychological beings. So in terms of the, the needs, um, what I would say is, yeah, I, I, you broke it down the way that is sort of the historic way to do this. There's an inherent value that we observe for participating in decision-making processes that are important, that affect our lives and affect these complex social ecological dilemmas. And then there's instrumental outcomes. I would actually say that traditionally in the economic perspective, like traditional rational choice theory, they would tend to focus on the instrumental side of things and say, well, people will only value the decision-making process to the extent that it gives them the outcome they want. Uh, and I would say, Usually, I think there's two sides to each coin. So I would say, yes, that's partly true. Do they get what they want? Do they feel like they're being influential? I think another part is the inherent value of exercising self-determination and experiencing procedural justice, which is a value in itself, which is this sort of idea that over many millennia, people have evolved these sort of psychological needs that have been really useful for uh, our species to adapt and thrive. And one of those is being able to exercise decisions in an appropriate way to that social group, but uh, in order to affect change, to feel competent in solving these problems. Uh, and so it is, and I have other lines of research that show that it's directly um, satisfying or reinforcing to experience choice, even if you don't get the outcomes you want in some cases. now. There's boundary conditions for these things. But so, yeah, I would say there's those two forms of value. The inherent value of being able to make decisions is highly rewarding. And actually, I would say required for human well-being. That's from self-determination theory. Um, but also, one of the beautiful things is, is that if we can make decisions in a smart way together, we can often get better outcomes. So they're, they're entangled. So, Daniel, when you mentioned this, you a couple of minutes ago, you talked about this idea of pattern matching. Yeah. When you're talking about fit. And if I understand you correctly, I really agree with what you're saying there, where we go to different places, we look at what the institutions are, we look at what the problems are, and we look at outcomes. One thing I've worried about with the idea of fit is it just feels very kind of ad hoc or post hoc or whatever version of hoc we're using, where if we like the outcome, then we say the fit was good. Yeah, and if we don't exactly. like the outcome, well, they must not have fit. And it's like, well, this is this is just an like a, a an ad hoc labeling exercise. This is not theorizing. Yeah, that was my initial concern about it, and is still my concern about it. And that's how I got involved in. Um, so that initial paper with uh, Mike Stokes and myself on the concept of participatory fit um, was in a special issue critiquing the concept of fit, and the main critique was it's all after the fact. It's like this, there was a good outcome, therefore it must've been good fit. Right, so, so what I would say, It's totally tautological, yeah. And that's not, that's not good because 
again, you could take any system and you could show in one situation that this governance system works and you can show in another situation that it doesn't. And those situations can look very similar, mm -hmm. but there are so many parameters that can affect how the outcomes occur that you need indicators, in my opinion, for each of these components and then see what the outcomes are. So you can say a priori, here's what participatory fit is. It's a situation where the majority of the people or at least really essential actors say that they accept this way of making decisions mm -hmm. a priori and that they say they accept this governance system. If that occurs, then it should be more likely that they're gonna to start to internalize that system. They're gonna to start to build trust and it would lead to better outcomes down the road. Right. Instead of me saying, this was a good outcome, they must have accepted the governance process. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me of this panacea discourse wherein we have a preferred governance modality, right? So in, in fisheries, which I've been thinking a lot about now, there's, you know, ITQs or catch shares are the dominant uh, modality or dominant panacea that everyone kind of looks, not everyone, but a lot of people look towards. For other people though, it's, it's protected areas. We need to just put a, put a line around everything. And this has been my concern with some of the literature, that some of which has come out of the workshop is, in response to these command and control-y designs, we've got this swollen literature on the importance of adaptive management, adaptive co-management, multi-level, something, something. It's just, you can find so many thought pieces on why we need to be more flexible and adaptive. And, and this has impacts in, in the real world. I was talking to a friend of mine, Forrest Fleischman, who's been, he was on this show. And we were talking about like adaptive forest management in India. And he was saying, well, look, what people do sometimes is if they find a, a place where adaptive management doesn't lead to a good outcome, they say, well, that wasn't true adaptive management. What's really happening there is not actually adaptive. It's not what we meant. And it's like, well, okay, but that's just, you're making it too easy on yourself to never be disproven. So if you don't like, specify and in this case it's it's participation so if something yeah if participation doesn't lead to a good outcome well then it wasn't it wasn't truly participatory i feel like what you're saying is leading us away from that trap though that's what i've been trying to do i mean a lot of my career has been focused on that specific problem of saying here's how you can assess a participatory process in a systematic way with a priori assumptions so you get out of this tautology and you actually see what the outcomes of that process are, because there's a couple of things to acknowledge. One, there's this concept of participatory fit. There's huge variation in forms of participatory engagement, and we need to find ways to actually assess those things honestly and see the outcomes. So I've been working on psychological measurements for that. I can give you an example we've been using in metro government decision-making here locally. Um, Daniel, can I ask you a clarifying question? Uh -huh. Sorry. When you talk about participatory fit, is this the idea that, and I've seen this in the description of autonomy from Ryan and DC and their work on self-determination, that autonomy is not about being totally free of constraints. It's not about just not having anyone else influence you. And I saw you actually say something similar. It's that you can feel autonomous in an environment that other people might feel is somewhat controlling as long yeah. as you're internalizing the processes around you that are affecting you. Yes. And you therefore feel like they're coming from you. They're, they're, they're in correspondence with your own values. They fit with who you think you are. Yeah, exactly. Now, one thing I'll say is, you know, 
prior to my work, DC and Ryan didn't have that concept in their, their, their theory. It was, there's an optimal form of participation and it's, you know, the highest levels of involvement you can think of. And they weren't thinking about complex governance context. Actually, their work came out of clinical environments and uh, classrooms and where they didn't acknowledge that much variation. And so I, I'm the one that introduced the idea of, you know, there isn't a one size fits all here. You've got to really understand uh, these perceptions. Uh, and then the psychology follows. So I think they did a great job of describing what happens when they're after there's participatory fit, but they didn't realize there's a concept of participatory fit uh, mm -hmm. to begin with. Uh, so I'll give you some examples. Um, one of them is as part of this interdisciplinary, actually transdisciplinary research group here locally at Louisville. And uh, what we did is we surveyed and attended a whole bunch of public engagement events of various types on different topics. In, uh, that were sponsored by the government here. And we, we used my standard measures of participatory fit. And what we were able to do with that is we were able to ask them, you know, how well did this event go today? Was it useful? Did it satisfy these needs, et cetera? We asked them, what forms would you prefer to do these kinds of things with? Um, and had them sort of rate those. Uh, and what we were able to do is we were able to show differences in, uh, preferences and satisfaction uh, in these events as a function of their subjective perceptions, which were in this case as a function of racial disparities, because this was a specific project looking at marginalization and disenfranchisement of black communities in Louisville. We're the uh, ninth most segregated city in the United States uh, by a 2017 report that I saw. And what we found was that uh, there would be these events one was a, I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of redlining, but it's this discriminatory real estate and insurance practice in black neighborhoods in the 1930s through 1950s-ish or whatever. Um, and so there's this historic disenfranchisement, et cetera. Well, we would go to these events where Metro government was informing people about the history of this saying, yes, in the past, this has occurred. We're trying to rectify this with these new methods. We would go to one event and uh, folks that identified as black or African-American living in these more segregated regions would be very satisfied with this dialogue and this public event. And another one, they'd be incredibly dissatisfied. So there's an example of worked well here, didn't work here, exact same type of event, exact same topic, what happened? Well, what happened was I attended one of these and this thing called elite capture occurred, where a whole bunch of people from really affluent parts of the city, even outside the city, mostly white, highly educated, really wealthy, came and attended these local meetings and took them over. And if they took them over, it became about their narrative and not the purpose. And then people were dissatisfied and they said it didn't work. Another example, which this goes to Lynn's work on self-governance, which is this idea that I've been talking about co-production was, there's a specific site in Louisville's West End that has been contested for decades. And the city has been constantly wanting to put in these like big development projects in this one city block area, um, which is surrounded by neighborhoods that are historically marginalized. So they want to put in a biodigester methane plant. They want to put in a food processing center, et cetera, et cetera. These folks there 
rose up. They fought this until the point that the city couldn't get anything done there. It became very costly. The city ultimately delegated the decision-making process to a representative of those communities called the West Louisville Community Council, which was uh, had representation for the nine key neighborhoods. They said, all right, we're giving you the authority and the responsibility now to conduct the participatory engagement process. So this is a different form of co-production in this case. It went from being highly centralized and top down to being a little bit more equal and delegated authority. Um, in that event, uh, this sort of partnership, it was the only event out of I think 20 different events where the uh, black participants said, uh, yeah, we're extremely satisfied with this. We feel like we have really high levels of, of fairness and we support this. Interestingly enough, that was one of the only ones where the white participants did not feel that way. Um, so uh, it wasn't that they got as negative, but it was less negative, less positive than what you normally see. So you see this sort of split occurring there. Again, in this case, it was subjective perceptions based off of cultural, individual, historic backgrounds determining what this identical process felt like to these individuals, which didn't determine the outcomes. It sounded like it was formally identical, but then informally there was some power dynamics that really shaped people's experience. And it reminds me of critiques of the Ostom approach in the commons literature generally is not paying enough attention to power and who has it and expresses it and who doesn't. And I'm aware that elite capture has been, it represents one of the main critiques to decentralization processes whereby if you don't actually influence who has power, the folks, you know, it, in general, my perception is that this is one of the main problems in policy generally, is that it's hard to help the people who really need the help. Yeah, and you know, that goes to the proper role of government. You know, how, when you have a different perspective on these problems and human nature, I believe it leads you to think of different types of solutions and different roles for government. So, you know, one of the roles for government, I would think ought to be to try to come up with solutions that level the playing field. Now, it's very difficult to do in certain political contexts like we see in the United States today, where we're already highly um, divided on a number of issues. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people start throwing around the word redistributive, which is never a word I've liked because it implies that there was this initial apolitical distribution that we're trying to redistribute. And it's like, look, folks, redistribution has been happening Everything is redistribution. There's no like one initial distribution. Yeah. Well, this goes to a broader concept, Chuck, uh, concept that, you know, you're talking about your view of your under current understanding of participation and that kind of thing. One of the things that I often talk about is that public engagement, so like public engagement events, and that's the whole goals around that, is not the same thing as participatory democracy. Participatory democracy depends on many, many centers of decision-making activity in society. And one of those that I think is sorely lacking, and I've been doing some research on this with one of my grad students, is neighborhood level self-governance. Where in the United States is a strong unit of governance for neighborhoods? There's many. There are many forms, but they're far weaker uh, than they used to be long, long, long time ago as the society has gotten more complex and we've started to become more bureaucratic and administrative in our democracy. Um, and so I really think that is the heart of where a lot of these problems lie. So I'll give you a sort of a concrete example. 
the West Louisville Community Council? Why don't all areas have that? Why wouldn't they have some type of local representation that goes beyond a council um, and that kind of thing that is self-governing and semi-autonomous that sort of is in charge of local budgeting and that kind of thing. And of course, townships used to do that, but that's been consolidated in a lot of areas. And, you know, there's different ways that you could sort of uh, in a federated system kind of lay this out to give more autonomy to communities. So that example I gave you a minute ago is an example of participatory budgeting. Why can't that become the norm, especially in these areas that traditionally can't uh, gain control over these other types of uh, processes that the more elite can easily use to advantage. Hmm. So that goes back to this idea of self-governance um, and do we have a healthy self-governing society? Yeah, I mean, part of this also seems to relate to the distinction between formal and informal. We can have like these formal mechanisms with labels that you know, should be implemented in a particular way by a bureaucratic body or maybe by several right. actors. But if you don't get, that doesn't mean that things change on the ground. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, I, and I think that this is like, there's this, there's this trap because we want to spread things like participation, but the way to spread it is through formalizing processes. Or at least that's, yeah. you know, I, I think that's part of the recipe for a lot of people. But then you can end up having this checkbox approach to participation, where as you're saying, you have like, Oh, we're really participatory because we had a bunch of meetings. Yeah. Meanwhile, that's that's a meeting amidst a highly disenfranchised system. Right. It's going to do very little. Right. In the long long run. Another way to frame this that I think is helpful, Daniel, is, and this gets back to Lynn's design principles. Um, David Sloan Wilson from SUNY Binghamton, who's taught me a lot about evolutionary theory introduced me to this distinction between proximate drivers and ultimate causes. It's very prominent in that field. It basically, we can think of it similarly to the difference between a design principle and its implementation. Uh, okay. So a proximate cause of some trait is like, what are the actual mechanisms that help something happen? What are the biochemical reactions, et cetera? The ultimate cause is explaining why those mechanisms lead to an increased fit. Why, are those, why is this adaptive? And so the design principles themselves can be thought of as some kind of ultimate cause. It's like they're adaptive because, for example, they help satisfy basic psychological needs, but there's many different, there's a one-to-many relationship between an ultimate cause and proximate mechanisms. There's many different ways you could be participatory. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as you were talking about the kind of cultural specificity that we need to recognize in what count in contributing to what counts as something being a participatory or not it's helpful to think keep that in mind that yes we want to be participatory but you there, there's still you to do that there needs to be this fit with local culture which influences the actual experiences that people have because it feels we're talking mm -hmm. about psychological processes and i really like what you said earlier about the need for a psychological interpretation of at least several of Lynn's design principles. Cause I hadn't, you know, when I was thinking a lot about the principles, I didn't see anything like that. And, it, and, and, and because of that, I feel like they felt a little under theorized to me. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that's exactly where the, the next step needs to take place. Hmm. So um, I have at least two more questions that I'd like to ask you. One is, 
So in, in the DC and Ryan framing, they talk about these three basic needs. And one of them feels like it's kind of first among equals because it's called autonomy. Yeah. And we've talked a little bit about that today already, mostly through the point that you made that, you know, to be autonomous, it, it, it really, is, it depends on your perception of the situation. And to me, that relates to this um, other distinction between intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation that has gotten a fair amount of uh, play in like the last five, 10 years in the environmental and common sectors yeah. is concerned about motivational crowding that intrinsic motivation is something I do on my own. I don't need someone to tell me to do it. And extrinsic is the domain of traditional policy analysis when we think about taxes and subsidies. More recently, right now, we're worried that um, an, uh, an, a f an, an extrinsic motivation can crowd out intrinsic motivation. So if someone's paying mm -hmm. me to do something then I don't wanna do it for its, it, that crowds out my inherent desire to do it. And there's the same kind of anecdotal evidence gets trotted out like the Israeli uh, childcare program. Yeah, yeah. So, all that relates to autonomy in the sense that if I have internalized, so the, the way something goes from intrinsic to intrinsic, I'm realizing it's harder than I thought to say these words in, in sequence, is through this process of norm internalization, which we all do all the time. You can't be a functional adult in the world if you don't internalize norms around you because people are going to think you're weird all the time and you won't fit in. Yeah. And so there's this whole interesting literature led by also people like Sam Bowles who are talking about how we need to reorient yeah. policy analysis to, to take seriously the idea that policy shouldn't just be about extrinsic motivations. It should be about how to get people to internalize the right norms. Yeah. Okay, so, so that's a lot. But then there's these other two basic mm -hmm. needs, Daniel, that they talk about, which you mentioned. There's relatedness and competence. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts about those as well, because you also talk in, in, in some of your work, I have the perception that you also, for you, there's not just these three basic needs that are relevant for um, studies of participation. So yeah. could you talk a bit about how you view uh, basic needs, what are the, and, and the relationships with each other and which ones for you are the really the most important? Okay, yeah, great. That's an interesting question. Yeah. So. This is where I'm a little bit different than self-determination theory. Well, first I'll say, here's what a basic need is or fundamental need, which I do derive from self-determination theory and some other areas in social psychology. In order for it to count as a fundamental need, it has to be universal, which means all humans have this need. It can be satisfied and manifest in different ways in different cultures, but fundamentally they still have this need for, like for example, self-determination, which is the newer term that people use instead of autonomy because autonomy connotes like a Western operationalization of self-determination. Okay. Whereas, uh, you know, self-determination in a more collectivistic context could be uh, relative autonomy or relative self-determination. So we have self-determination, our group has self-determination uh, or I have self-determination through this leader who I endorse. But anyway, so it has to be universal. It has to apply to all aspects of human cognition. Um, and what that means is that it's it's the starting point or starting motivation for pretty much everything people think and do. Now, they might not always be aware of it. And there are interesting ways you can show whether or not they're operating in alignment with these needs or not. But that's one of the parameters. Um, and uh, that 
and that it's essential for optimal human function. And so there's been studies before showing that, you know, if you're in a very impoverished need environment, you're not getting self-determination, you're not feeling competent, you don't feel like you belong. I mean, just think about that. That's a horrible situation to live in. It decreases your lifespan. It makes you depressed. You start to act in unhealthy ways. Okay, so it has to meet those three criteria. Once it meets those three criteria, it can become a fundamental need. Now, this is where I differ from self-determination theory. More recently, they've started adopting my perspective, um, but they used to identify three fundamental needs, self-determination, competence, and belonging. I add to that list security. I got that from uh, rational choice theory, Hobbes's work especially, and Lynn's work on the concept of credible commitment and credible threat. Uh, because what you see in a lot of these situations, people want to optimize their sense of predictability and safety and assurance. Um, and then I add to that equity needs. Self-determination theory didn't have that in there. So procedural justice is a form of equity. So I'm getting fair, equitable treatment in the decision-making process in this organization or this governance system, but also outcome, outcome equity. So distributive justice. I'm getting fair allocation of outcomes. That's been more recently acknowledged very strongly in behavioral economics and traditional economic theory. They'll, and so if you wanted to get my take on rational choice theory historically, if I translate it back into um, what they're saying about fundamental needs, if I map what they're saying onto that, then what I would say is they have traditionally focused on a very narrow definition of self-determination, which means I get what I want for my benefit, uh, a very narrow sense of security. I feel secure or whoever's in my in-group feels secure, um, and economic welfare. So uh, I get these instrumental economic outcomes that I need, which, which are important. What I would say is I broaden that and say, yes, I think what they're describing there is a worst case scenario. When humans are in unfavorable governance conditions and they're not getting their broad needs met, they will become very self-interested in the way that rational choice theory describes. But there's two sides of this coins. We're very complex human beings. I bring in these other needs and a broader definition of self-determination, for example, to say, you know, ideally what people seem to actually be trying to optimize is a broader sense of self-determination, of being able to do things that align with their self-interest and their beliefs, but not necessarily having to have total control all the time or have it exactly the way they want. They want procedures to be fair. Ideally, in some cases, they care about egalitarianism and they want the procedures to be fair for everybody. Um, in terms of competence, it's this basic statement that, and I think this is a critically important aspect to the narrative uh, of rational choice theory that's lacking, which is competence is basically your drive to solve important problems that are disrupting your life across the board. That becomes extremely important motivator because from the rational choice theory perspective, the idea is that you're driven by pure, very narrow self-determination, security and economic welfare, which will cause you to dig in and strategize against other people to get these very narrow wins. And yes, we see that occur, but over time, that's usually not enough to really solve these complex problems. And what brings people to the, the table to begin to try to solve these in a broader sense is concerns for competence. I don't, they can recognize they're not really solving the problem well. And concerns for equity, okay? This isn't fair to me. This isn't necessarily fair to other people. So what I'm getting at here is 
people will settle for the narrow rational choice pathway, but ultimately it seems they're striving for something bigger. And if, if you put them in the right context, those needs will jointly lead them competence to try to solve the problem, the social side of it, the ecological side of it, equity, let's try to make it a, a good solution for everybody to the extent that we can. Procedural justice constrains your self-interest and says, well, if you think about it, I can't be fully self-interested all the time because that would be unfair. And if they did that to me, it would be unfair to me to get through these cycles. Now, an important caveat to all of this is it depends on that person and that context. They're sort of where they are in their maturity in terms of governance maturity. So they won't always optimize these things. Sometimes they'll go for the narrow and they'll think that's the best they can get and they'll become very self-interested, et cetera. But if you can show them another way, what I'm sort of saying is, and what humanistic rational choice theory is saying, is you can show them another way. If you can give them some very important opportunities, you can often rely on those needs to help kick in and they can start to learn a better way of relating to one another. And I think that's what you see in Lynn's cases, these well-governed uh, resource dilemmas, uh, a process initiates that lets them start to satisfy more and more of these needs. They start to build trust. They start to refine their approach over many, many cultural evolutions until they end up with a process that does a much better job of satisfying more needs. So in terms of priorities, I've been giving a lot of thought to this. Um, and my thinking has changed very recently on this. Um, so when I first started thinking about the design principles, Lynn at the time had explicitly said, there is no priority among these principles. They're, they're all important. I've started to rethink that. And I'm starting to think that um, all the needs are important, but in terms of design principles to satisfy the needs, Decisions always have to be made. Whether or not you realize you're formally or informally making decisions, decisions are always made. As soon as you, you behave, you've made a decision. So to me, procedural justice and self-determination are primary because even if I wasn't involved in a decision-making process that came up with some rule that someone's trying to enforce on me or something like that, they made a decision. And I will instantly say in my mind, is that fair? the way they made that decision, was it fair? So to me, it's primary in people's idea in their own minds. Did I get involved in the right way? Was this decision-making process fair? Did it satisfy self-determination, procedural justice? And then they go down the list, competence. Um, yeah, so I would say that procedural justice and self-determination are primary when thinking about the design of institutions and people's reaction to rules and whether they're gonna follow them and internalize them. In terms of their own motivation to self-organize, I think all of them come into play. Mm. And I don't know yet if there's a primary order among them. I currently think there's probably not. Probably people come to it from different pathways. So one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm working with a colleague on the idea of why polycentric governance networks look the way they do. And what I'm realizing is what brings them to the table these different actors that negotiate or don't in order to create the, the, the structures that end up being. And I think what brings them to the table is concerns about equity. I'm getting unfair costs. You're getting unfair benefits. I'm not being uh, included in this decision-making process. I need to be that. So if you come to that table, then you've already said, okay, I want shared decision-making. I want communication. I want uh, equal balance of costs and benefits. Let's design a system to do that. 
So it just kind of depends on the person's stance or that stance or the actor's position, I think. But ultimately, I think that all those needs are driving them. I have wondered about this too, about is there some way to arrange the design principles in a way that's not just a list? And I mean, it reminds me also, Daniel, of really the, the last question I wanted to make sure I ask you, which is what's the role of enforcement here? Because as I've really started to take, as I started to read more and more about self-determination, self-governance, you read that there's this kind of, there's a tension here, right? Because governance is about control. And then we read that people really, if you let them be autonomous or self-determined and, and they feel like things have been fair, they will more likely comply and cooperate and be pro-social. So I think for a lot of people, there's this tension where on one hand, we need to change people's behavior. You have to have some kind of enforcement. There's a whole literature that says that if you don't have enforcement, you can't maintain collective action over time. Yeah. But again, does enforcement crowd out intrinsic motivations to comply and cooperate? And I know you have this paper and it's one of the ones I saw cited in the book that you wrote the, the you know, I know one of the, the co-authors, Marco Jansen, mm -hmm. you know, synergistic effects of voting and enforcement on internalized motivation to cooperate in a resource dilemma. And I'd love to start to wrap up by asking you about that paper specifically and also about your views on enforcement and how it relates to the importance of participation. So one of the things that's interesting that I think is a, a big update on self-determination theory is originally self-determination theory. I mean, it just straight up said enforcement, supervision, regulations, always bad, always causes extrinsic motivation, never do it. Well, the implication of that would be voting or something like that would be your optimal governance system with no enforcement. And actually, when I designed that first study in 2015 with Marco and Alan Lee, um, as a postdoc with Lynn, I believed that. I thought voting would be the optimal scenario and that enforcement would be bad across the board. So this is a good example of how you learn from your own research. Um, and so first let's talk about the internalization process. The gist is if you get more of your fundamental needs satisfied, especially procedural justice and self-determination, then you will be more likely to accept that governance system and its rules and internalize it. And if you internalize it, you incorporate it in your sort of like um, cherished sense of self. You say, I stand by this, I wholeheartedly endorse this. And then that triggers this like magical intrinsic motivation. So that's really good. Another critique though that I would add to this is um, self-determination theory has been very strong about saying extrinsic motivation, always bad, you don't want it. I disagree. I think that humans have both intrinsic and extrinsic motivation for a reason. I think it's more adaptive. So think about it this way. Intrinsic motivation is supposed to be fun, interesting. You shouldn't feel really vitalized after you do it. So think about the things you love doing the most and how you feel like more alive afterwards. I love to do research, but I don't always feel intrinsically motivated. It's not always fun. It can become awful. And it can be awful for months, parts of it. And that's just the way it is. So if I relied only on intrinsic motivation and not extrinsic motivation, like people want to see me actually produce an outcome here or else, then I may not do it always, you know? So you need both. So the, in my mind, the important thing is balance. You don't want one or the other only. You want both so they can carry you through these various times. So then you start to think, 
What kind of governance systems provide the best balance of intrinsic and extrinsic motivation or internalization um, and these sort of extrinsic motivators? So the gist of what I have learned through my research, and now I've, I've replicated this so many times over in different ways, some of which aren't published yet that we're working on, but the gist is a process that people perceive as fair. So like voting in a Western situation typically can be seen, like a majority vote can typically seen as on average fair, those fair processes will justify the enforcement of the rules or the outcome. But at the same time, the enforcement will protect this willfully chosen democratic process. So you need both. So the idea is that voting, let's use voting as an example, because that's what we did in this first paper. Voting by itself will, will produce a certain level of fairness and procedural justice and self-determination, and that will cause a certain amount of internalization. Uh, but what about the people who didn't get what they wanted from that vote? And actually, in these experiments we did, it just so happens, just randomly happened this way, that the majority of the groups had two people that chose the same sort of conservation strategy that they wanted to use for these common pool resource dilemmas, and the other two were split. So that mean, meant there was a small two-person majority. So what that meant is two people got the rule they wanted and two people didn't. Okay, well, what then? Well, what happened was the people who voted and lost, they didn't endorse the rule and they actually pillaged the resource while the other folks who endorsed it just sat there and watched. That's literally what happened. On average, it improved outcomes, but these people sure didn't like each other afterwards. And really what you did is just take two people away and keep them from pillaging the resource as well. That's, I wouldn't say that's optimal. Same thing that happens with elections. You've got conservatives and liberals, you know, before they do the vote, they'll say voting, that's the best way to do this. After the vote, when half of them lose, they'll say, this is unfair. We need to go back and redo the votes. We need to change uh, our electoral college, etc. Same thing happens in that experiment. Okay, now, the gist of that is voting by itself or participatory process by itself in the short term can satisfy needs for fairness, but in the long term doesn't satisfy security because you can't create a credible threat or a credible commitment to keep the people who lost from deviating or defecting. So then you bring in enforcement. Enforcement comes in and it says, hey, we voted on this. If you don't comply, there's gonna be consequences. And so what we found is that that's often a strong deterrent to where you don't even see enforcement being used. Just the mere presence of enforcement combined with the democratic or fair decision process is typically enough to keep the people who didn't want to cooperate to cooperate. And what we saw in one of our experiments was that that was actually a really optimal scenario because the people who won the vote, they were already going to follow it anyway. So really what you're trying to do is to convince the people who lost the vote to begin to follow it, but also internalize it. So what we found was that their acceptance and internalization of that rule increased over time, the people who lost the vote. And what we did, we tracked it round by round. And what happened was initially, they were afraid to get punished, so they didn't defect the ones that lost the vote. And then what that allowed them to do is to see, ah, this rule actually works pretty well. I'm actually doing better, we're cooperating. And then they start to internalize it. And then after that, when we take away enforcement later in the experiment, they keep on cooperating because they've internalized it. Contrast that with the condition where we impose the rule, they didn't get to vote, and we gave them enforcement. In that situation, enforcement had the exact opposite effect it made it worse. They actually began to cooperate worse. And even the people who got a rule, we tracked how much they liked the rule before they started. Um, so rule effectiveness and acceptance and stuff. 
The people who initially accepted it and thought it would be effective over time, they started defecting. And what we realized was that when they used enforcement in that context, it was perceived completely differently. So this gets to the bottom line. The bottom line is that what enforcement in my mind can do two things. One thing that it can do is it can empower people to do the things that they already wanted to do. So that's a situation where you have some collective decision-making process, some majority of them make a decision. It seems pretty fair to most people, even if they didn't get what they wanted, it's still like, okay, this was a kind of fair process. Now it makes sense why we would enforce it. We would enforce it in order to protect this and ensure that it works. So there it's empowering the group to do what it collectively decided to do. So there it actually will crowd in or increase intrinsic motivation. In the context where this rule is imposed from the outside and there's no justification for why this rule exists, which is often what people think when they didn't have a part in helping make the decision. Uh, if they don't see that justification for the rule, they don't see the justification for the enforcement and it feels oppressive. And so that's the difference. And so that's why it's so important to have a decision-making process that people perceive as fair, whatever that is for that context, and then combine it with enforcement. Uh, if you don't have that, enforcement will backfire across the board, in my opinion. It seems to be the case. No, that's fascinating. I mean, I, I think that, that really helps, I think, move us in the direction of trying to reconcile this perceived tension that really enforcement, like a lot of things, can it can push you in one direction or really the other, depending on how it's perceived. Yeah. Daniel, uh, your work seems... You know, all of this is very... It's I want to call it applied, but what I mean by that, it's 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 very practically relevant. I mean, you are kind of, I often don't like this like applied versus theoretical yeah. framing, but have, have you thought about the practical implications of this in, in working with local folks, communities? Um, do you engage with non, when you engage with non-academic actors, like how does your background influence how you do that? Because what, like a lot of people in the commons field, I've gotten much more interested in transdisciplinary work it's not just about increasing knowledge, but also thinking about how do we, how does that knowledge engage with other social values other than social, like other than science? Mm -hmm. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that as we wrap up. Yeah, so it's often a challenge to translate the sort of basic research to the real world applications, but I have tried my best to keep that in mind and do it as much as I can. So in uh, some of this transdisciplinary work I did, I've been partnering with, her name is Allison Smith. She's uh, the lead uh, community engagement, engagement specialist for Louisville Metro government. Um, and with, along with some anthropologists, sociologists, a number of other people in that work in Louisville Metro. And you know, she's in charge of trying to educate different units in Metro government who don't stay in communication very well on proper public engagement strategies to ensure better fit, better outcomes. And so what we've deduced from this is uh, there, there are some simple things that you could do. Um, so one of the things is that they don't have a metric. They don't measure perceptions. So one of the most simple things you could do is have a very brief measure, which I helped develop, you know, just a few questions. How fair do you think this decision-making process was? Um, did you have sufficient voice, et cetera? What were your goals? You know, what went well, what didn't? That will help you track, okay, this is going well the, or not. Uh, for this sort of adaptive participatory fit process. The other thing, this one is actually uh, really simple too. 
what happens in a lot of metro governments is you'll have these different teams and they'll be in charge of different development projects or policies or whatever. And then the, the federal law says you got to have some public engagement events. So then they go out there and they think they can do it. And they just do it. It would be much better to have a trained community engagement liaison uh, and have the requirement that before any government unit goes out and engages with the community, they meet with that person and they develop a good participatory process plan so that that person who's well-versed in this can help guide them through the process. And that process would generally be, well, let's start with some initial uh, contact with communities and find out what kind of engagement processes they would like to have. And let's give a, let's give a range of those to them. Let's keep a trained person who actually hosts it. So going back to that redlining dialogue example I gave earlier, what happened there were there were different hosts and some of them could handle the elite capture better than others um, and recognize it was occurring and then stop it and move on. So th those are some important uh, things you can do. The bigger things that I think are more applied are far more complex. So I've been working on this concept of state reinforced self-governance that was introduced by Sarker in 2013. And what I've been doing is I've been taking that general concept, which is the idea of what can governments formally and informally do to enable various uh, actors to self-govern and in different forms to address problems themselves and collaboratively. Um, so this is sort of like in the Vincent Ostrom strain of things. And what I've been doing is I've been making design principles for, for the state reinforcement side of things. And those design principles are um, authority to make decisions and carry out operational activities, responsibility to do those very same things, uh, external operational resources and internal sources of self-sufficiency, and then balance of mechanisms for flexibility and stability. And there's lots of those. Now, authority, uh, weighs very heavily on the fundamental need for self-determination um, and competence. Responsibility, uh, it has to do with the balances of those authorities and who's required to do whatever. So this sort of like extrinsic side of things. So the gist of it is that you can take these broader design principles and map them onto this concept of autonomy support from self-determination theory. And then you can start to think about, okay, we have this complex dilemma. We've got all these various actors. Let's look at their capacities of authority and responsibility and their operational resources. Let's see what that's configured as. And let's see if they're getting together and sharing communication well, et cetera, et cetera. So you basically start to think about this complex system in terms of uh, the need set, the mutual need satisfaction of these actors and how could you de design a system to improve it? Um, so. One really simple example of that, which kind of scales up from these simple lab experiments is, let's say you got multiple actors that are responsible for a particular dilemma in society. If you see that most of those, that there are key actors that are not included in that decision-making process and communication process, then you can be pretty much sure that somebody's not getting their fundamental needs met in terms of procedural justice. So the simplest place to start would be to say, we need to include more of these actors. I mean, this is out of the classic playbook for public engagement, but we include some of these actors and we need to help them. Uh, we need to provide uh, maybe a formal mandate that, okay, here's this problem. You all need to step to the plate and solve it. Here's some funding to do it. Here's some general guidelines to make sure that you have a equitable, good power sharing uh, process. And if you do that, you might, you might get good results. Um, 
a concrete example of that is, um, so I've been doing a lot of research on a nonprofit land trust organization in Chicago called NeighborSpace. NeighborSpace's mission is to acquire small plots for community level governance for green spaces. It emerged after a series of lawsuits claiming that the city of Chicago was discriminating against black neighborhoods uh, by not providing them uh, sufficient access to green spaces and recreational areas. Now, the way that the city of Chicago responded was a seven year sort of uh, self-study. And they said, sure enough, you're right. We're providing less acreage and access and et cetera. And instead of just doing some top-down approach, what they decided to do was to take the three city agencies responsible for land holdings. So the park district, the forest district and the city, uh, the mayor's office basically, which represented the city. And they came together and they created a neighbor space partnership agreement that created this nonprofit land trust and imbued it with the powers to acquire these properties and then transfer to uh, communities to self-governance. Well, in their construction of this, there's a board of directors, like in all nonprofits, and they very carefully constructed the representation on that board of directors so that all three city partners had representation, neighbor spaces, internal staff had representation, and some entity that tries to represent the community interest. So in this case, it was usually um, an alderman uh, from their sort of uh, city block club system there. They're the core decision-making body. That governs this sort and that governs this sort of arrangement and keeps all of them in communication. If that body functions well, it will do a really good job of satisfying procedural justice and self-determination for that group. And then if they go, they want to enforce their policies, those policies will be legitimized by that process. And in fact, that's what we found through these interviews we've been doing. Uh, we've been coding their background policies and mapping them on to these design principles, et cetera. So that's just one example of how that worked. Okay, then one last thing, I almost forgot. So in Louisville, we have the same problem. Marginalized stakeholders can't get green space access. The city has been struggling to find a solution for that. Um, and what their solution was, was to basically get the cooperative extension service to try to do the same thing that neighbor space does. It doesn't work. And I won't go into all the reasons why, but it's basically, uh, Cooperative Extension Service has the wrong capacities. It can't actually accomplish that goal uh, formally or informally. So what we've been doing instead is one of my grad students, her name is Abby Rudolph. She's a local community activist in uh, food and neighborhoods, uh, sort of uh, voluntary activist group here that's been trying to organize policy change and raise public awareness, et cetera, uh, around this issue. And what we've been doing is I've been training her in these concepts we've been talking about today, good public engagement, uh, design principles for state reinforced self-governance, uh, the, the proper design of a neighbor space-like organization to resolve this type of problem to allow this sort of adaptive self-governing process to occur. So what we did is we distilled the design principles down into guiding questions for these different, uh, for, for the food and neighborhoods group and these activists to consider. So we say, okay, who has authority to make decisions about this? Who's being left out? Who ought to have authority? Okay, how fair do the people perceive this decision-making process? Why or why not? What's going on? It helps them clarify the issues. Who, who has responsibility? Who, who should have responsibility? Where are operational resources going? 
So using them in the sense that I think Lynn was kind of thinking as these sort of like guiding decision-making principles that you think about as you're doing this cooperative process that I talked about earlier, this sort of societal problem solving, is to basically say, okay, are Lynn's design principles in place? Are these design principles for state reinforcement in place? Do we feel like it's fair? Do we feel like we're enforcing the right things? If not, we've diagnosed some problems. So that's turned out to be pretty useful for them. Uh, it's something I'd like to see more of going down the road. Hmm. That was a terrific answer, Daniel. Thank you. Oh, okay, yeah. I've been thinking about it a lot. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you're up to quite a bit. Doing, I'm working basically two careers at once, I would say, <laughs> honest, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Do you like it that way? So uh, it's challenging, but it's also, I think, the way I think of it is high stakes, high reward. Uh, I tend to operate at a slower pace because I'm not focusing on one thing at a time. I'm focusing on multiple and their combinations, but I think I'm, I think I'm laying out important frameworks for people to use to, to make uh, good accomplishments with. I mean, the way that I look at it is, it's sort of, as I said at the beginning, you can't understand the governance systems and context, social ecological systems, if you don't understand human behavior. Because humans are the one that define the problems, that create the problems, that create the solutions. But at the same time, you can't understand human behavior if you don't understand complex systems and social ecological systems and governance, et cetera. So I do a little bit of lab research. I do a little bit of case study research and all, and all that stuff in between to try to work at both ends simultaneously. And it's been really useful. Hmm. Are there any final topics you want to cover, Daniel, before we wrap up? Things that we didn't cover that you want to get to? One thing that I would say real quickly is, so these fundamental needs, and I think this is where another departure from self-determination theory, I'm trying to update rational choice theory to recognize a broader set of needs that drive self-interest. And ultimately what that has to boil down to is utility functions. Those fundamental needs have to be producing utilities for people. And those have to be going in some fashion into a cognitive calculus system that decides, you know, what are the, the costs and benefits of these different uh, processes or, or uh, approaches. So I've been doing work lately on um, trade-offs between procedural utilities, like procedural justice and self-determination and economic utilities to figure out when people will give up their freedom of control um, and, and sort of in, in exchange for economic security, basically. Um, and one of the things I did recently is I applied that to the 2020 election. So what I'm trying to do with some of my colleagues, so I got a colleague, um, Jared Hodling, um, he is a computational modeler for cognition. And we've been working out some very basic cognitive models of how we think economic utility might be combining with these other fundamental needs and forms of utilities to guide their decisions to trade off freedom of choice in different situations, specifically to try to understand uh, when people will prefer a benevolent dictator. Uh, so I'm trying to understand this like rise across the whole world in more interest in authoritarian leaders, even in the United States um, in terms of that. And so, one of the things that we did that we still need to work the models out on, I'm, I'm writing up the results right now, is in uh, the 2020 election, we had uh, people from several states and we had, uh, I think, 700 or 800 participants 
rate the candidates. So uh, candidate Trump and Biden at the time in terms of perceptions of procedural justice and fairness and economic outcomes and managing the pandemic and all this stuff. And we use their measures of procedural justice and self-determination to say, do you perceive this person as providing um, procedural justice and fairness as being like a autonomy supportive uh, leader and government uh, and pr produce governance that way? So it worked out the way you would think. Conservatives on average said that President, at the time, President Trump <clears throat> would be autonomy supportive and that Biden wouldn't and vice versa. So now we know which system or which actor they think is associated with autonomy support. And then we said, okay, what if this scenario happened? What if um, Trump becomes president and it causes uh, economic depression? Which one would you, would you choose? Would you choose Biden or um, you choose Trump? So Biden would be a dictator in this case, and Trump would be the autonomy supportive for conservatives. And what we found was that conservatives would be very likely to vote for Biden if it would prevent an economic uh, depression from occurring. And the same thing happened in the opposite direction for liberals. So liberals would say, I'll give up, I'll give up Biden, who I perceive as providing democracy, and I will instead take this, this dictator who can protect me, so Trump in this case, from this uh, economic downfall. And so we're working out procedural models to uh, account for that. And then the other thing I'm doing uh, is I'm looking at institutional evolution. So we're collecting data. We just started collecting data on this last week. We're putting people in the common pool resource paradigm. We put them in a situation that has no rules, nothing. It's the worst case scenario. They always do poorly with it. And we say, okay, now that you've experienced that, we're gonna put in a governance system. Here's five options. Uh, actually, it's four now. We adjusted it. Four options. Uh, voting. So I'm replicating the other thing. Voting. Voting with enforcement. Imposed rule. Imposed rule with enforcement. Which of these would you prefer? How well do you think these would satisfy your needs? How well do you think this would satisfy your economic outcomes so that we can get these utilities? We're going to use those measured perceptions of utilities to account for or correlate with their preferences at time one. Then we're gonna put them under one of those systems. So we'll say, okay, you're in the voting situation. You're in the imposed. Have them go through it again. And then we're gonna ask them again what they prefer after that. And we're gonna track their change in preference for different governance arrangements over time as a function of need satisfaction and economic utility. Um, so basically what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to work out the underlying <clears throat> utility theory uh, for how people uh, choose leaders and governance systems over time as a function of how well those systems are perceived to satisfy their needs and how much they actually end up satisfying their needs. Because what I found is going into it, people are very naive. They'll think that a certain system will work great. And then as they get further along, they realize, ah, this isn't working right. We need to adjust. So a clear example is a lot of times they'll prefer voting at first because that's the most fair way to do it here in our country is what they'll think. Satisfy my needs, we don't wanna enforce, you know, that's overstepping. Then they do that and they realize, okay, some people didn't follow the rules, we need enforcement. So then they go back, they want voting and enforcement. So basically just trying to work out those procedural utilities is what I'm working on now. I mean, it sounds like a part of the lesson there too is that it might be helpful if folks can actually experiment with different institutional arrangements. I mean, that reminds me of the discourse about adaptive governance too. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 all part of that. And the way that I've 
think about it is I believe the reason that Lynn's design principles have shown to be so important is that when those principles are in place, it increases the chances that they can tolerate the iterative learning process the way that they need to, because there's a, there's a large amount of trust that's needed in order to do the experimentation. And if you're communicating with each other, you're sharing decisions, you're trying to find ways to monitor each, each other and be transparent, that helps you get those reassurances and trust that you need to basically plan for failure. Because that's what happens when you experiment. You say, let's give this a try. It could go wrong, but let's give it a try. Um, so if you build up that social capital with those design principles, it, it lets you be able to maintain that healthy sort of dynamic to do the iterative learning. Very cool. Well, thanks, Daniel. Yeah, thank you. This has been My a lot pleasure. of fun. Yeah, I was um, super pumped to talk to you about participation and all the other concepts. So it's been it's been really helpful for me. I think it's gonna be helpful for the for the listeners. Yeah, great. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I always like talking about this stuff. It was good to touch base with you. Yeah, yeah I look forward to it. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can find more episodes as well as entries in our blog on our website, incommonpodcast.org. The Incommon Podcast is the official podcast of the International Association for the Study of the Commons, or IASC.